Bradford Bishop was an exceptional man. He earned great grades, got multiple degrees, held a prestigious job within the U.S. State Department. And then he killed his entire family and went on the run. Why? Well, that's what today's episode seeks to explore. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden, your favorite podcast about bad things, like real bad things, not missing Amazon deliveries or late credit card payments. Uh, no, more like um, murder, missing persons, that that sort of thing. I am Brad, the host that's so adorable, you just, you just want to squeeze me. I'm also a former criminal defense attorney. Second part is probably a little bit more important for giving the show credibility. But honestly, I'm more proud of the first part. Today's episode is all about a family annihilator with no obvious motive for being a family annihilator. On the surface, it appears this man had a good life, loving wife, three adorable boys, a cool job. But underneath it all, there was something evil lurking. And when it came out, it came out in a messy way. And the most amazing thing of all is this dude never got caught. There's always a happy tale for a happy day, right? If we're going to be late with an episode, we may as well share something that's all sunshine and rainbows. So let's put our work boots on and get this one going because I feel like we're going to be walking over broken glass at times. So enjoy! William Bradford Bishop Jr. was born August 1st, 1936 in Pasadena, California. Upon graduating from high school, Bradford attended Yale, where he earned a degree in history. Then he received a master's degree in international studies from Middlebury College in Vermont. Now there's competing reports about just his basic education some saying he received his bachelor's in American studies and his master's in Italian. But it seems to be undisputed that Bradford received a second master's degree from UCLA in African studies. Regardless, while he was at Yale, his roommate commented that Bradford was an arrogant guy with a touch of aggressiveness behind his attitude. He knew he was better than you and went bananas when he couldn't prove it. Like, if he played you in tennis and you beat him, he's the sort that would just beat his racket all to bits. Very endearing quality, right? So, after receiving whatever degree from Yale, Bradford married his high school sweetheart, Annette, in 1959. They would eventually have three sons, not all at the same time, of course. After getting all those degrees, Bradford enrolled in the U.S. Army, where he was assigned to work in counterintelligence. When it came to languages, he was one skilled dude, becoming fluent in English, Italian, French, Spanish, and Serbio-Croatian. When he finished his tour in the Army, he earned a position in the U.S. State Department, serving in the Foreign Service with a whole mess of postings overseas. He would be sent to Verona, Milan, 
Florence from 1968 to 72. That was his tour of Italy there. While in Florence, he even did some more postgraduate work because he wanted to see how many degrees a man could hold. While serving in Milan, his co-workers noticed that he had an almost uncontrollable temper and could get really nasty when he got upset. They also felt like Bradford believed he was a superstar when he didn't really produce any remarkable work. After his tour of Italy, Bradford was sent to serve in Ethiopia and then Botswana from 72 to 74. While in Botswana, another diplomat's wife found Bradford to be tightly strung and the entire family to be overall very tense. During one of these postings, probably one of the ones in Italy, Bradford was actually sent to infiltrate the Yugoslav Army ski team. Yes, there is such a thing, and this was his job. It helped that Bradford was an outstanding skier, and this was kind of viewed as a great chance to obtain some recruits for the U.S. spy machine because, again, Yugoslav Army ski team is where he's being sent to infiltrate, and this was during the time that, you know, the big old Soviet Union was going on. So, yeah, let's get some Army skiers Dropping us some info. His personnel file indicated a severe reprimand while he was traveling through Yugoslavia because he had these classified documents and see what had happened was he wasn't really good about making sure they were secured and didn't really make sure that they were kept confidential. And the superiors didn't really care for that, you know, which makes sense in this sort of game. Though he never formally worked for the CIA, instances like this and him serving two years as a liaison to the CIA in Germany have made question have made people question exactly what he did overseas and who Bradford really answered to. So there's a thought that his State Department postings were really CIA postings in disguise. After all these tours, he was finally sent back home to serve as the Assistant Chief of the Division of Special Activities and Commercial Treaties in the State Department. Bradford moved his family to Bethesda, Maryland and invited his mother to come live with the family. Hey, looky there, two weeks in a row we're touching on Bethesda, Maryland. Who would have guessed? Now, Bradford was a very, very, very driven man, and he worked very hard and did what he could to constantly move up the ranks in the State Department. He kept a diary, and it indicated that he was constantly trying to obtain excellence in life in general. But he was frustrated as he was confined to his desk at work once he returned to the U.S., and apparently in the State Department, you don't get promotion so long as you sit at the desk. On March 1st of 1976, Bradford learned he was being passed over for a promotion he greatly desired. And this was a really big deal. Actually, Bradford had learned that he wasn't going to get promoted a few weeks before. But the promotions list was kind of posted publicly. So everybody else in the State Department knew that he had been passed over. Now, the problem 
And the reason why this was a big deal was apparently there was some de facto rule, or maybe it was a rule written on paper, that if you were passed over for promotion so many times, you were kind of shoved out the door. Well, Bradford had been passed over five times. And if he missed one more chance at promotion, he would be given his walking papers. And for such a driven man who thought he was, you know, God's gift to the State Department, this was just unacceptable. Now, in the weeks leading up to the promotion day, probably after he had learned he wasn't getting this promotion, Bradford confided in a colleague that he was seeking psychiatric care because, quote, my job is horrible. My kids and my mother are driving me crazy. Bradford, like I alluded to earlier, believed his career was stagnating because he wasn't out in the field. And, you know, he loved being out in the field. That's where he felt like he was doing the most good. But his wife wanted the children to have some stability while growing up, while going to school, and didn't want them bouncing all over Europe. And this was a point she absolutely refused to be flexible on which made Bradford feel like it was a wall between him and the success he believed he was entitled to. So after learning this news about not being promoted, he sulked around, and on the day it was made official, that March 1st, he told his secretary he wasn't feeling well and that he was going to leave early. Well, Bradford didn't go straight home. In fact, he had some errands to run. First, he sat by the bank to withdraw several hundred dollars. Then he went to a nearby mall where he purchased a gas can and a sledgehammer. Then he visited a hardware store where he purchased a shovel and a pitchfork. Finally, he stopped to get some gas, both for his vehicle and for his newly purchased empty gas can. So who has their spider senses tingling right now? It seems like from reports that Bradford got home a little before 8 o'clock, maybe, and began his attack. It's widely believed and accepted that he killed his wife first with the sledgehammer. His mother was likely his next victim as she was seen returning from walking the family dog roughly the same time that Bradford got home. Then Bradford went and killed his three sons, ages 14, 10, and 5, again with a freaking sledgehammer. All of them were in their pajamas, all of them were in their beds, and he just bludgeoned them to death. His next step was to calmly load the bodies into the back of his station wagon and head towards North Carolina. He ended up driving 275 miles in about five hours until he pulled into a densely wooded swamp not far from Columbia, North Carolina, which in and of itself isn't that far from the Atlantic coast. Now, this location that Bradford chose was odd because it's believed really only locals would know how to get to this particular spot. I mean, you had to travel down all these unmarked logging trails. And so he goes out into the middle of nowhere, essentially, digs a shallow grave, throws his family members' bodies in there, pours gasoline all over them, and sets them ablaze. It just so happened four strangers were on duty and one of them saw the smoke. 
and immediately became worried that a brush fire was starting. So in response, the ranger radioed for help, and another ranger rushed down one of these logging roads to come across the fire, but it was really just a bizarre scene in his mind. He didn't understand why a fire was started in such an isolated area, but as he looked around, after he managed to put the flames out, of course, he kind of noticed the bodies. And then he took an inventory of his surroundings and found a partially obscured five-gallon gas can, a shovel, a pitchfork, and some tire tracks. Yet the murder weapon, the sledgehammer, was not there and, spoiler alert, has never been found. North Carolina police were summoned and they quickly descended on the scene. Which is what some people will actually believe Bradford won. I mean, this was such uncharted terrain, to the extent you can say that about the United States, that nobody would have found these bodies for years. Yet one psychologist who is familiar with this case made kind of an offhand remark during an interview that to Bradford, you know, these murders wouldn't count unless they were seen. People had to see what he did and recognize it. So police immediately begin broadcasting news of this horrific scene to police departments throughout the area. Now, of all things, it was the shovel that helped police out the most. Because the shovel still had this uh, sticker on it that had a serial number. And they were able to use that serial number to trace where the shovel was sold. And with that bit of information, they learned that the shovel was bought somewhere around Bethesda, Maryland. So police contacted police departments in that part of the world. This turned out to be a pretty smart move because police in Bethesda had been receiving phone calls from concerned neighbors as none of the Bishop family had been seen in almost a week. So obviously this wasn't a bang, bang, bang series of events. Things moved slower back then. Regardless, weeks gone by, police learn that there may be a killing afoot. Nobody's seen the Bradfords. They go search the house. And they knock on the door. Nobody answers. But, you know, police found some pretty large blood splatters and pools of dried blood. Some even on the front porch. And so they thought maybe they should poke around a little bit more. None of the neighbors had seen anything unusual. They hadn't heard any screams or anything out of the ordinary. A photograph sent from North Carolina to the Maryland police of the crime scene, you know, where the bodies were burned, helped police confirm that the victims were the Bishop family, though dental records had to be used to confirm the identification. At least most of the Bishop family, because you see Bradford's body was not with them. So guess who suspect number one is? Now, police were baffled when it came to answering the most compelling question. Why? According to friends, family, and neighbors, there were no reports of any marital problems. There were no affairs. There was no money problems. Or, you know, and the other common stressors in a marriage that would lead to such a grisly deed being performed. 
but that turned out not to be 100% sure. See, the bishops were pretty good at hiding their problems. Radford, despite having this important government job, didn't make enough money to support his family. That's why he invited his mom to come live with them, because she had the inheritance from his dad. And it turns out she was really helping them sustain their lifestyle. There's some reports that she was even the one making the mortgage payments on the house. They were also in a bit of a tax binding. The IRS was in the process of auditing them. Also, they found out Bradford wasn't 100% faithful to his wife. Superiors at the State Department were aware of at least two affairs Bradford had during his overseas postings. There certainly could have been more that they weren't aware of. And Bradford's animosity towards Annette was apparent if you knew where to look. For example, this is just extremely tacky. When Bradford applied on a recent credit card application, he described his wife's job as chief slash slave. Bradford's secretary told police that she was aware that he hated his mother, who was particularly domineering and constantly put down Bradford by making comments like, a man is no good after he hits the age of 35. So some believe that Bradford was done with his life and was ready to start over. It was soon learned that Bradford had stopped at a sporting goods store in Jacksonville, North Carolina, to purchase some new tennis shoes. And according to the sales clerk that helped him at this store, Bradford was accompanied by his family dog and a dark-skinned woman of Caribbean descent. On March 18th, which is only 17 days later, Bradford's car was discovered at an isolated campground in Elkmont, Tennessee, within the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The car contained dog treats, a bloody blanket, an axe, a shotgun, and a traveling shaving kit that contained Bradford's medication. When police dug a little deeper, they found that in the spare tire well, there was a big old pool of blood. Locals claimed that the car had been parked there since sometime between March 5th and 7th. Police were of the opinion that Bradford had tried to blend in with other hikers on the Appalachian Trail, but bloodhounds really couldn't pick up his scent. On March 19th, two days later, federal prosecutors obtained an indictment charging Bishop with five counts of first-degree murder. And that's it. That's the end of the trail. At least for a little bit. See, one of the most important items Bradford was believed to have in his possession was his passport. And because he worked for the State Department, he didn't have a commoner's passport like you and I. He had a special diplomatic passport. So, you know, back in a time pre-internet and effectively pre-computers, he would show that to a flight attendant. No questions asked. He's allowed on the plane. 
it was confirmed in a 2014 interview with a retired FBI agent that Bradford's wallet and passport were missing from his house and had never been found. Another interesting point is Bradford had his own pilot's license. So, you know, just overall looking at the situation, dude had a whole lot more mobility options than I have, and probably more so than most of you out there have. And it would seem that Bradford took advantage of these options because while his case received nationwide attention, it eventually received worldwide attention. And almost all the reported sightings of Bradford came from overseas, specifically in Europe. There were three sightings that were deemed most credible by the police to the media. In July of 1978, a Swedish woman reported seeing Bradford in a public park in Stockholm twice within the course of a week. The woman claimed she was certain it was Bradford because she had actually worked with him while he was stationed in Ethiopia. In January of 79, Bradford was seen leaving a bathroom in Sorrento, Italy by another State Department employee. The employee tried to stop him and said, hey, you're Brad Bishop, aren't you? And the employee reported that the man said no. He had a, clearly had an American accent, and he immediately left the area as quickly as possible. A third sighting occurred all the way in September of 94 at a Swiss tr train platform by a former neighbor of Bradford's. Apparently, this neighbor was just on vacation, was at this train station, and happened to see him. He said that Bradford was very well-groomed, in good shape, and he was hopping in a car to leave. In April of 2010, Bradford actually made a place on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And he stayed there for over four years before being removed for someone who was considered a more dangerous criminal. Interest in this case has stayed alive for the decades since the murders. He's been featured on a ton of crime shows, such as, you know, just in the U.S., America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, Vanished, The Hunt. There's newspaper articles published periodically as folks continue to remain interested in this case. In 2010, law enforcement revealed that before Bradford disappeared, he had been corresponding with a federal prisoner by the name of Albert Kenneth Baxton, and that multiple letters had been found in Bradford's desk at the State Department. But nobody really knows how these two knew each other or how they hooked up, how they became pen pals. According to this law enforcement report, the letters demonstrated that Bradford was looking for someone to carry out the murders for him. He didn't want to kill his family. He wanted someone else to do it. And in fact, he had tried to get it done at a time when he would be overseas at some State Department convention so that, you know, he would uh, have a perfect alibi. Now, the last letter from Bankston was put in the mail 16 days after Bradford killed his family. 
So law enforcement suspects that Bankston really didn't know about Bradford's intentions. And Bankston ended up dying in 1983 before police had an opportunity to question him. Twice police got excited because they thought they had Bradford's remains. The first was in Hong Kong, which caused FBI agents to fly halfway across the world only to confirm that the dead man was not Bradford. The second was much closer to home, especially for me. It was in Alabama, when a man matching Bradford's description was hit and killed by a car while walking down the side of the road. Though the man looked remarkably like Bradford's twin, fingerprints didn't match. In 2014, the FBI decided to commission a forensic artist to produce an image of what Bradford would look like at age 77. The current theory is that assuming Bradford is still alive, he is likely living openly in the U.S., staying out of trouble so his fingerprints are never taken and run through the system. Law enforcement has taken the stance that until they find the body, they are working on the assumption that Bradford is alive and will continue hunting him. As far as popular theories, some truly believe that Bradford wandered into the woods after killing his family and died, either from exposure or an animal attack or suicide. This, of course, doesn't explain the subsequent sightings or his vehicle being found in Tennessee a few days later. Others think that he obtained a new identity and has been living under assumed name. Naturally, the most popular theory is that Bradford used his extensive knowledge of the immigration policies and the general bureaucracies to move through various countries quickly and without issue. I mean, he had lived in multiple countries and spoke multiple languages, which would make it easier for him to blend in with the local communities. Both the FBI and CIA insist Bradford had never worked as a spy in any capacity, but many, including most in local law enforcement, think that his ability to disappear so thoroughly had to be due to his spycrafting skills, especially when he gave Bradford a two-week head start. Now, interestingly, or oddly, or whatever fun word you want to use here, there is a semi-secret training facility the CIA has only a few miles from where Bradford buried his family, which kind of further fuels these rumors, you know? He's obviously been in the area, because only locals know about the spot where he went to. Interestingly, and this is very interesting to me, Technically, because this was a State Department employee, the State Department would have jurisdiction to pursue Bradford and charge him with the murders and whatnot. But they, to this day, have made no efforts to hunt for this man. In one wild twist that comes out of left field, a woman in 2021 did one of those you know, DNA tests where you can find out your ancestry. And she learned that she was actually adopted. 
After learning this fact, she started digging into who her parents were, and lo and behold, her daddy was Bradford. The FBI looked into this and confirmed that, yeah, this was true. But after interviewing her for a while, it was clear, and public records backed this up, that she was adopted away at a very, very young age. So she clearly had no contact with Bradford, no relationship with them. And again, she was surprised to learn that she was even adopted. If Bradford's still alive, he'd be around 86 years old. Just for a generic description, in case you want to go on the hunt for Bradford, he's around six foot one and 180 pounds. He has brown hair, brown eyes, and a medium build. He's usually described as very charming and funny, but kind of haughty, and he lacks patience. He has interests in tennis, swimming, camping, fishing, skiing, flying, and motorcycling. And he's quite good at most of these things. One would say he excels at them. All right, so what's our biggest takeaway from this case? Well, obviously it has to be you can't trust a brat. But let's dig in a little bit. All right, first of all, where is Brad? I mean, assuming he's still alive, where can we find this dude? You know, I think the smart money would be on him leaving the country because he had these unique skills and experiences that would really allow him to blend into the background in Europe or in Africa. Africa is an interesting choice because... You know, so many of those countries have so many problems looking for a fleeing U.S. State Department agent wouldn't really be at the top of their priority list. Being overseas is also a whole lot safer because obviously, you know, the FBI can't go pounding on doors in Italy or Ethiopia. They just don't have jurisdiction. Uh, there's reports that Bradford was apparently in love with one village in Switzerland because he felt like it had the best snow skiing in the world. So a lot of folks have kind of looked there to see if they can find Bradford, but they've had no luck. Now, having said all that, having said that the smart money's on him being overseas, I'm going to say he ain't. I'm going to say he's living in the United States, or he lived in the United States. He may have left the country for a while until the heat died down. But remember, this dude was having money problems. He could not support his family. He was nearly broke. Remember when he pulled money from the checking account? He pulled all that he had in savings, which amounted to $400. Now, in today's money, that's about $2,100 in spending power. How far can you go on two grand? Honestly, I mean, you can't live a wealthy retiree's lifestyle skiing in Switzerland every day, right? And while I can't speak to what immigration rules and policies were like in the 1970s, at least in today's world, moving to a new country does not give you the right to work there legally. You're going to arrive, you know, on like a retiree's visa or a tourist visa, something like that, which does not give you the right to work in the country. To obtain one of those visas, 
is a lot of work. So it would be much, much easier, particularly in the pre-internet days, for Bradford to obtain a new identity and continue residing in the U.S. Seriously, this is how it used to work, and I'm only really comfortable divulging this because it doesn't work very well with the internet now. But, I mean, back then, it was easy to get a new identity. You would basically go to your local library, re go through the obituaries around the time that of your birth, and you would look for children who died roughly around the same time that you would have been born. Meaning that, I'm not saying this very clearly, children that died at a young age that would match your age at that time. Now, you want them young before they have driver's license or anything like that. You know, you're looking for two, three, four-year-olds. You would then write to whoever kept vital statistics in your state and ask for a copy of their birth certificate. You could get it, no questions asked. Once you got a copy of that birth certificate, you could then go to your local DMV and say, hey, lost my driver's license. Oh, wait, 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 I'm skipping a step. With that birth certificate, you could then apply for a social security card saying, I lost my card, can you send me a new one? Then with that, you can go to the DMV, get your drive, a new driver's license, and all of a sudden you've gone from being Bradford Bishop to Lee Means or whatever. Then if you really want to be thorough, you can move to a new state. In that new state, you go to the probate court, file a petition to change your name, then go get uh, a new driver's license, get a new social security card, update your birth certificate. And if you want, move to a second state, do it all over again. And basically you would create this paper trail among all these states that don't talk to each other when it comes to paper trails. And so you're leaving the FBI to go county by county to look for paperwork to see if you've been there and you've changed your name, which realistically they cannot do. And so by doing that, you end up at the end of the day, a brand new birth certificate, a brand new driver's license, a brand new social security card. You've got a brand new identity. So I'm thinking that this is probably what Bradford would do. I mean, he would certainly have the knowledge to work the bureaucracy well enough to make this happen. And if he had received spycraft training, like so many people think, well, it'd just be that much easier for him. Okay, so if we follow this path, then we have to decide whether Bradford would want to return to a place he's familiar with or move to a new area in the United States. Well, he can't stay in the DC area, right? There's just way too much heat, too many people that would recognize him. You can't go back there. Even if he's left the country for a spell to let the heat die down, you can't go back to where people are going to recognize you. North Carolina and Tennessee would also be a bad choice because there's going to still be, regardless of how long you're gone, there's still going to be some cops looking into this case. 
and you don't want to be someplace where you could accidentally stumble into standing out. California and Connecticut, I also think are off the list because he did schooling there. Again, much more remote connection to him, but why take the chance if you're going to go on the run? I think he would have to head to brand new lands, places that he didn't have an established connection. And my thoughts are he would probably head maybe to Utah or Wyoming. He has no connection there and both have great skiing. He could take up a life as a ski bum and no one would really give him a second glance, you know? He could get odd jobs around a ski resort. That would give him a chance to ski on the weekends. Typically, employees got to do, you know, would get lift tickets for free. And, you know, if somebody asked him who he was, what he was doing there, he has an easy story to tell. My wife left me. She took the kids. I ended up losing my job working as a drone for some big corporation. So I said, screw it. I'm going to do what I want with my life. No pressure. No expectations. Just come out here and ski. And who's going to look at a ski bum anyway? You know, I mean, Bradford has, has this quality of life, this attitude that excellence. You know, I'm going to be the best at everything I do. Well, then why not go to a job where it doesn't attract excellence? You know, great cover in my opinion. I know you're saying, okay, Brad, that's well and fine. But you said earlier that the top three most uh, convincing sightings of them all occur overseas. All right, well, those aren't as awesome as they appear to be. We're going to start with the second sighting, the one by his former co-worker in the State Department. Of all three of those sightings, this one is laughable. Um, when this employee was questioned about seeing Bradford, the employee just knew too much. He had too many details, and a lot of them were wrong. On a hunch, because law enforcement wasn't buying the story, they asked this dude, hey, do you know if Bradford had a connection with so-and-so? Well, so-and-so was the name of one of like their plumbers or something like that. And the guy said, well, I don't, that name doesn't ring a bell, but let me go check my notes. Well, a couple of days later, he phones back the police. He was like, you know what? I do have information about Bradford and so-and-so. And he goes into this long, detailed story about some nefarious activity they were up to. And so, you know, he lost a lot of credibility. The one about the neighbor seeing Bradford at the train station in Switzerland, I don't know how that's ever considered credible because this is like a three to five second window where the neighbor's getting off the train, he sees the guy getting in the car, and he believes it's his neighbor from, what, 15, 20 years ago? How reliable is that? Eyewitness sightings are already incredibly suspect to begin with. When you're rushed in a crowded area and you're not expecting to see someone, how much value can we really put in that? 
Now, maybe the lady that worked with Bradford in Ethiopia, her sighting may have some credibility. But the only information she could provide is she saw him twice in a park in Switzerland. That's not much to go on. And admittedly, she said, you know, he had changed his appearance. He'd grown a beard. He had cut his hair. He was wearing glasses. Or wasn't wearing glasses. I have that written down here, but I have a memory of him wearing glasses in his picture. Regardless, his eye coverings changed in one way or another. So again, just... If you go with I would, you know, with the standard belief that eyewitness testimony isn't that reliable, eh, none of these really move the needle for me. Now, I don't disagree with the idea that him being passed over for a promotion, coupled with his home life problems, may have been enough to make Bradford snap. What I don't understand is why did he need to kill his family? Why did he need this total and complete reset on his life? Did he view his family life failures as something that had to be erased? And even if so, even if so, okay, the manner in which he did this is horrifying. I mean, this is not something where, I mean, like setting the house on fire and having him burned to death, that's a horrible way to go. But at least as the perpetrator of the crime, you're not looking in their eyes as you do it. And here he goes up to each of his sleeping sons and takes a sledgehammer to them. That's horrific. It's brutal. It's so personal. And again, I mean, he knew what he was doing. He got rid of the bodies. He took them across state lines, several jurisdictions away. Again, if he hadn't burned the bodies, we may not know where they are. But I, I still, I have a hard time wrapping my head around why kill your family because if nothing else, if for no other reason, if for no, if you're totally fine with looking your child in the eyes and bashing him with a hammer, why make yourself such a high-priority target for law enforcement? If you just disappear, they don't care as much. It's not headline news. I mean, yes, the State Department has to be concerned that somebody that works in their office has gone missing, has gone rogue, perhaps. But it's not a family annihilation. But maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, again, Bradford's exceedingly arrogant. Maybe he thought he could easily outsmart and outmaneuver law enforcement. Maybe he was trying to show the U.S. government and the State Department how valuable an asset he was that they were just wasting away. And, you know, as of today, it certainly looks like he's winning this game of hide-and-seek. There are actually some folks who believe the CIA and State Department helped Bradford begin a new life. And if this is true, then heck, he could relocate anywhere and disappear with ease. You know, they could have put him to work as an asset, and he could receive monthly payments, a monthly stipend, for whatever spy work and intelligence gathering he could do in a foreign land. 
absolutely no evidence to support this theory, but in the world of spycraft, why would there be evidence to support this theory? <laughs> um, so, sadly and unfortunately, this one ends with a question mark. Bradford has successfully avoided capture despite being, at least for a period of years, one of the FBI's top 10 most wanted. Um, you know, I'm of the opinion he's probably passed by now. So he won the game. He was able to commit five brutal murders and was never punished so far as we know. So congrats, Bradford. You outsmarted the system. I, I don't know why you had to. I don't know why your family had to pay for this. But especially your children. But, you know. That's the bed you've made. Anyway, uh, palate cleanser. Let's do that, okay? Naturally, it's related to today's episode. So here we go. Why did the spy cross the road? Yeah, it's one of these types of jokes. Why did the spy cross the road? Because he was never on your side. Not... Not a perfect joke. Not really even a solid one, but you know what? It's the one we're going with. We're going to stand by our choices here. On that deflating note, this episode's over. Now go on. Get. I got chores to get to, and it's getting late. But, you know, on the way out the door, if you'd be willing to sign up for that KMH Plus subscription I've heard so many good things about, that would be snazzy. Help support the show and all that. Also. On your way to work tomorrow, if you could do just one tiny thing to help promote the podcast. Um, as you're driving in, if you could just stop your car and block all lanes of traffic and then get in and get out and scream at the top of your lungs about how great Killing Miss and Hidden is and actually like make people in the cars behind you show you that they've subscribed, that would just be so, man. I would love you all so dearly if you could do that. All right. Now go get your booty out of my recording studio. Right out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.